At some point along the road, we've all yearned to be a part of the inner ring. The inner ring is an invisible order which we encounter at high school, church, workplaces, sporting clubs. Often we have to sacrifice our internal sense of what's right and wrong in order to slip into the ring. It's a bit like a cult, governed not by authority, but by a willingness to impress a bully, a coercer, or the popular kids. This phenomenon was articulated by C.S. Lewis, the prolific author, thinker, and Christian apologist. The inner ring exists in the institutions of every human endeavour, and the desire to belong leads the individual not at first to some great wickedness, but to the incremental compromise of truth and goodness required in order to be accepted by the insiders, leading at last to complete capitulation to the forces of evil. On today's episode, I'm joined once again by University of Pennsylvania's Professor Jonathan Anomaly. Jonathan and I talk about how this harmful clique has now expanded into something much grander, much more consuming, and much more dangerous. The inner ring is now the engine room for woke culture. Whether it's angry women moonlighting as modern feminists, white people calling other white people racist, or journalists, politicians and academics spreading false narratives to fan the fires of hate. The yearning to feel important has never been stronger. Inside Out with Nick Holt. Obviously that inner ring concept is something that is applicable to you know, everything um, from high school social groups to top organisations. But with the top organisations, I think it always starts from the position of power. You have the most powerful person on the, in the office and then the second most powerful person is a sycophant to that person and then the third most powerful person is a sycophant to the second most powerful person because he or she is a sycophant to the first. And it's this kind of flow-on effect from that. Until I read this C.S. Lewis piece, I couldn't quite articulate it, but it, it plays into people's deep need to feel wanted. Right. Or as Dale Carnegie said in How to Win Friends and Influence People, the chief distinguishing difference between humans and animals is the need to feel important. Yeah. The inner ring makes people feel important without realising why, perhaps. What's so interesting, like today, what's going on with woke culture or progressive culture, whatever you want to call it, across the West, is you've got all these conformists. I mean, you have the ringleaders, so to speak, pun intended there, people who understand exactly what's going on. They want the power. They want to control people. Maybe they want to enact some twisted vision of society on the rest of us. But then there's just the masses who all they want is to fit in so that they too can be part of this inner circle. So that at the very least, they feel like their lives have meaning, they get social approbation. And I think that's the best part. The, the main lesson of, of the ring from C.S. Lewis is that it's really difficult to not want that. In fact, maybe we can't, maybe we always are gonna be tempted to want to be part of that inner circle, to want to be appreciated by them. But it's the greatest virtue to resist it, especially when it's easy, when it's easy for you to be accepted by them. Like you're in, the, you're in a church that you don't agree with or I'm in a university and it's like so much easier to just conform, make money, get invited to dinner parties 
And it's so much harder, but it's a character virtue to just resist and say, no, I'm going to lose my integrity if this happens. When you are an outsider, you face a lot more adversity um, and you're going to have hard times. But as as C.S. Lewis says, if you can resist it, it's worth reaching. And one quote that really stood out for me in that passage was, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. Yeah. And and this is something that I've thought about a lot over the years is it's almost like this um, dilution of morality when there's more than one involved. And you can trace this back to bullying in high schools. Um, if one person is bullying a kid badly, it, it looks horrendous from the outside. But when there's four, five, six people doing it together, it's as if they're sharing that immorality equally across each other. Yeah. Look, I imagine you get it a lot in, in the military in terms of doing some really horrendous things. We've seen this recently in Australia. There's a lot of investigations into um, the SAS here and how they behaved in Afghanistan. And you can see from these reports that there is this inner ring. In war, you see it through extreme depravity. It could be a mass rape. It could be a massacre. And, and it's normalized. I mean, I guess your point about it becoming moralized is, you know, once enough people do it, then they think they're in the right and you're the strange one. You're the, you're the evil one. Or, or at the very least, you're not participating in what good people do or normal people do. Um, but in fact, of course, it's a twisted morality. I, I actually read a bit of Christianity into this parable because although he doesn't mention it at all, it's clearly in the back of his mind. And when you think about, you know, what a good Christian does, it's to overcome temptation of, of all kinds, but especially that kind of temptation. Uh, as you said, it's sort of you know, the temptation to move from just sort of everyday bad thoughts or actions into actual evil. That takes the, that's, that happens when, as you said, you have this temptation to fit into a group where the group starts to define what's good or bad. Yes. Or rather than your initial sense of a moral compass, right, which is God, but for those who, who say that it is not, then we kind of have to agree that there is some kind of primordial moral compass and aristotle would have said that and of course he thought too what the reason the christians the the christian church loved aristotle even though he was pre-christ is that he had this view that ultimately although we have morality in us or we can be habituated into the virtues that it stems ultimately from a kind of creator from a kind of god i mean one argument obviously is that God is perfect in all ways and therefore has a perfect moral plan. And it, we are not perfect. So how, how can we create a perfect moral plan? Yeah. I'd argue that we can't. This is my biggest problem with progressivism is that they believe they can create that blueprint. Not even believe that they can create it, that they actually have created it themselves. And it's a very dangerous precedent to set 
you take some of the examples, I mean, the most twisted example imaginable that none of us would have even thought of 10 years ago is this transgenderism craze. The idea that there are no sexes, there's no, there's no real male and female, it's all socially constructed, and that it's actually a virtue to change your sex and to pretend you're something you're not. In a way, I mean, this is the most perverse form of the ring, right? Where you've got an extreme minority of progressives that have a lot of power, and then they try to gaslight everyone else, including people on their own side who might have been skeptical into thinking, well, anyone who disagrees with this is a transphobe and a bigot. And suddenly you've got entire institutions, like in the United States, changing such that you have boys competing against girls in track meets or in California, men saying that they identify as women, they're allowed to. That's all the verification you need. And then they go into female prisons and rape women. And that it's supposed to be a virtue to support that. You're a bigot if you oppose it. That, that, that's the kind of inner circle that a true test of morality is in, in, in resisting. Yeah, so we've reached a point where the inner ring has kind of expanded so much to dethrone God that the inner ring is now, in the West at least, I mean, the East is smarter than this, is now the moral arbitrator of everything, right? It's so pervasive. People get their morality now from, from um, pop culture and entertainment. The only thing that I would disagree on is, while the, while the Chinese, for example, aren't suffering the same maladies that we are, they of course did during the Cultural Revolution, and they're laughing at us as we go through our own Cultural Revolution, they themselves, of course, are massive conformists on a, on a, on a really large scale. So, you know, when the Chinese government puts out information, misinformation, like, well, the coronavirus came from the United States, actually, or it came from Italy. After all, why else would there be a big outbreak in Italy? You know, people are expected to believe that. And I don't know how many do in China, but I think a lot do, actually. So they've got their own, they've got their own problems when it comes to trying to conform to, in this case, what the government, what the CCP wants them to believe. In that way, they're not smart, smarter than we are. They might have less degraded leaders in some ways, as perverse as that sounds. But Yeah, I guess smarter in the sense that they're controlling both the scope and size of progressivism. It's not promoted through their media. Right. We've reached a place in the West where we've been infiltrated so much by lust and... Sure. Uh, the kind of obscene, I think we've spoken about this before, right? You have the, the graceful body and the obscene body. The graceful body is the ballet dancer. The obscene is the stripper. <laughs> and obscenity is now PG yeah. instead of R. And I don't think people are appreciating just how much of an effect it's having on society. Like you combine pr the um, prolificity of pornography with the hookup app culture and then a deeply immoral media. And what we're seeing at the moment is like the 60s on steroids. Mm -hmm. That's right. All in the name of liberation, right? And this is the thing. Women are actually being lied to. And any woman who believes this narrative, especially now, as I mentioned to you a couple of days ago, there was a national march for women's justice because two women have come forward saying that they were sexually assaulted by the Conservative Party here. 
So all of a sudden you got people flocking onto the streets saying enough is enough and any critically thinking reasonable Australian should find the notion that rapists are walking the street repugnant. It's the inner circle thing again. It's easier to say, well, I'll just support it than say it's absolute nonsense. But I've spoken to more than enough women in my life Hmm. and they all think it's nonsense, right? Isn't that interesting? So many, so many women understand women more than we're, and, and they're not allowed to say the ways in which they understand them publicly. My mother is the same way. My mother's progressive. And during the Kavanaugh hearings, during the Me Too movement, she was absolutely disgusted. And she would constantly tell me, did they really mean to say women don't lie for advantage? Are they serious? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I mean, women, women understand it more than anyone else. I mean, men, of course, lie to the same extent for advantage. But this idea that this is somehow men have a monopoly on this makes women privately laugh, even if they don't do it publicly. It makes happy women laugh. It makes miserable people. It gives them a cause. Miserable women, right, who have been chewed up and spit out by this hookup culture. They wanna, they're not going to take responsibility for the number of guys that have crept out the window. They've got to find an outlet for that rage. And it's just too tempting for them to not jump onto this bandwagon. I was going to say a couple of cases in the US in the last six months, and we'll get to your point, you know, really is, is interesting for how the media promoted it. So first of all, the number one song of summer was the most vile hip-hop song which went by the acronym WAP. I'm sure you saw this. It I've heard was about this, yes. Absolutely revolting. And it was promoted by the media. I mean, they were saying, well, this is this is wonderful. It's celebrating, you know, women, black women, whatever their sexuality. And the second case that that I think of is just a couple days ago, there was this, you know, shooting of an Asian massage parlor, which is really mm. a prostitution house, a brothel. And what did the media do? Well, they made it have nothing to do with what the shooter said, which was he was addicted to pornography, which, you know, look, I don't know. I have no idea. I haven't looked at the case too closely, but probably true. Certainly makes sense that he would be addicted to that sort of thing. And then he would go shoot up a brothel. But instead, they made it a diversion. They made it about white supremacy. Uh, So he shot a white person and, and a bunch of Asian call girls, which is really sad. But just think of what the media turned that into. They didn't make it anything about sex, sex, sexual liberation, pornography. It was all about white supremacy, which was just a diversion, transparently. The first thing I saw trending was Asian hate crimes need to stop. I was like, hang on a second. You've jumped from from African-American to Asian very quickly. Is it just going to be everyone but white people? Well, that's, that's exactly it. And as you know, that's the point of this new term of art called person of color or people of color, right? It just means let's take all non-whites and set them against whites. Maybe they have nothing in common. Maybe they even have opposed interests, as in the case of affirmative action, most of which comes at the expense of Asians. Everyone understands that, which is why the media progressives are trying to form this coalition. And it's very difficult to do. When you look at the numbers of hate crimes, for example, and this is once again publicly available data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 
who's responsible for the so-called hate crimes against Asians? It is a certain demographic, and it's not a white demographic. I can tell you that. So the media is very careful in how they spin these things. They say, well, hate crimes are up against Asians. Looks like that's probably true. They're up a bit. But what they don't do is break down who the demographic is. Or when they do, and I've seen a story like this, it's, it's amazing. They'll say, well, white supremacy is the reason that blacks are, are harming Asians. <laughs> you know, it's just it's funny you say that, per, per people of color, because to me, that might actually be one term that is racist, right? It's a designation. It's a designation that removes all aspects of individuality from the human being and categorizes them as nothing more than a skin color. Yeah, yeah. The irony is, is, is astounding. Irony the, doesn't really deter them. This is a strategy for political power. That, that's obvious. That's right, yeah. As I said to you, here we have the, um, you know, the, the opportunistic, self-righteous academics who have actually been exploiting the, the, the true plight of Australian Aboriginals, which is that they're um, raping their children, they're heavily addicted to alcohol and drugs. This is, this is in the communities, really horrible stuff yet they ignore it because they're not going to get grant money for writing about that, are they? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a tough situation. I mean, I'm sure you and I agree, you know, the Native Americans here, uh, you know, Aboriginals in Australia, have nothing but sympathy for them. I mean, they, you know, they, they're the descendants of people who were moved off their land. Some of them still are on their land, of course, but a lot of them were moved off and you know, some of their tribal ways were wiped away. Yeah, I mean, that's that's tough. And and of course, it's true for almost every group on Earth, too, if you go back far enough. But but yeah, it was a bit more recent and it is tough. So, you know, what do we do is the question. And I think everyone cares about that. But some are using this as an excuse, like you said, to get grants, to, to get power, to shame others. Oh, well, this is your fault or something that Aboriginals are drinking too much or whatever. You know, so, yeah, it really, it deters us from actually finding solutions that bring harmony between different groups. Instead, and it also, sort of says, well, just one group is responsible, so let's get them, you know. And also, you don't actually zone in on the problem itself. There are a number of problems, especially, I think you'll find this in all Indigenous cultures, is that when the uh, colonisers came, one of the, the most detrimental things that they did to their culture was to remove the languages. So the Aboriginal culture had around 290, 300 languages. And now I think there's only around 60 that are spoken sporadically throughout the country. So you lose cultural autonomy through that and you lose the ability to tell stories, which is how they would communicate their language. That's one big problem. Yet they want to focus on changing the date of Australia Day because that's apparently deeply racist. Symbolic actions that don't do anything. Yeah. Don't do anything. And I've spoken to Aboriginal elders. They don't care about that. They see the, the actual, the tangible problems that are happening in these communities. Death, basically. I mean, the ultimate. Death and, and sex crimes and things like that, like you said. And you've got these white academics who basically have worked out that the more racism in the country, the more grant money. Yeah, it's pretty atrocious. And, and actually, we can tie this together again with, with the, the C.S. Lewis parable. Because, okay, think about what you and I would do uh, you know, to address a problem like this. My answer is, I don't know. Let's ask them. What do they need? 
like serious question. Let's let's meet with them and c- kind of figure it out. What's going on on a particular reservation? Um, do they need property rights? Do they need police? Do they need addiction counseling? I don't know. I would ask them and try to figure that out and and maybe, you know, st- sort of put some money toward the problem and try to figure out how to cost effectively solve it. But what do a lot of academics do? Well, what they do is they virtue signal to each other. They often do not meet with these people, <laughs> but instead, mm. you know, they're they're on Twitter, <laughs> keyboard warriors, you know, just sort of organizing rallies, organizing rallies. Yeah, that's good. Inventing new words like person of color or Latinx instead of Latino or Latina. I don't know if you saw this, but you know, surveys have been done for Mexican and Hispanic Americans, and they ask them, "Would you prefer the word?" Hispanic or Latino or Latinx. And it's like 95% reject Latinx. (laughs) And still, these white progressives in academia force this word upon them. And you see CNN and MSNBC, these kinds of mainstream media publications just promoting these things. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because they want to be part of this elite upper class circle. And they want to shame the rest of us who are either not doing anything, but we're not doing anything harmful either. Or maybe, you know, I'm not doing it, but some people are trying to figure out how to solve the damn problem, right? Uh, why don't we actually go down and, I don't know, maybe do some do some charity in the Aboriginal community? Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to be on Twitter this weekend talking yeah, about persons wanna, of color, right? They don't want to get their hands dirty. No. And it's I, not I, glamorous, right? I mean, to, to I don't know, to hold someone's hair back while they're throwing up and trying to figure out how to solve their addiction problem. That's no fun. Or just even just listen to them without without any result or it's just the process of sitting down and listening to someone's day or their story. But going back to your point about money, it's one of the more complex issues that we could grapple with. Um, money doesn't work, mainly because it's you're trusting government to allocate that money into areas, right? I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. No, and one, that's, that's right. I think what they need, as far as I can understand, is they need their culture back, you know. This is a 60,000-year-old culture. and They had a deep relationship with the land. Mm. And if you all of a sudden cut them off from that relationship, I imagine the isolation and the lack of identity must be horrifying at the same time the people that want to that are, that are calling you and i racist and we don't understand the plight they want progressivism yet they don't understand that globalism is actually what caused the problem in the first place right the english coming here why aren't they blaming the royal family saying why did you do this to them what's it got to do with you me and john down on the corner yeah fair enough and and of course, on the other side, you know, I didn't mean to suggest too much that money will solve the the problem, especially not government money. If, if anything, it would be people who claim to care should spend their own money to go to the places they claim to care about and really listen, like you said, and figure out what it is these people need. But yeah, on top of that, I mean, I'll go back to my previous point too, and, and that is, I think it's Im- important for everyone to understand that the history of the world really is a history of of one group colonizing or dominating another, and that doesn't justify it. That's just an observation. It's like the default in history was that. 
you know, and, and, and it's, I don't know as much about Australian Aboriginals, but I do know in the Americas, you know, one tribe would absolutely decimate another one. There were mass graves long before Columbus got here. There were wars. That, that's part of human history. And the real question is not, you know, well, there's this one group that's suffering. All groups have suffered in the past. It's sort of like, well, how is it that some groups, some states, some societies have managed to rise above that? And have very low murder rates and very high productivity rates. I'm not saying we should thrust that on the Aborigines. They should be able to do whatever they want. They should have their own land. But it's just to say that this is not a unique thing in, in Australia or the United States. I mean, Europeans did this to each other. As you know, Europeans would go on acts of conquest toward other European countries and enslave those people. Mm -hmm. The Vikings would enslave the, the Irish, for example. If you go to modern-day Iceland... You can do a DNA test, a mitochondrial DNA test, and what you find is that basically all the females descended from Irish slave girls that the, mm. that the Vikings simply took and raped, and then they became part of the Viking family. And the Turks did this to Europeans. They would kidnap European women and just enslave them. They, they'd turn them into a harem. So this, this really is human history, and the, and the question at some point is, while I do think the aboriginals who want to live in traditional ways, they should have some land to do that. The real question is, how do we improve human welfare, improve opportunities? And like you said, it can't be by just throwing money at the problem. It also can't be done by doing to the white people what the previous white people had done to them. And this is the activist point of view. And, and the, the, the um, truly, truly astonishing part of this is that you have a whole group of white people now who are saying to people like you and me, you're on Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. These people are the ultimate disgrace to, to, to themselves because A, they're not doing anything for the Aboriginal culture and B, they have complete disrespect for their own culture. So who's going to respect, who's going to respect them at the end of the day? <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really good point. Nobody respects a self-hating person, right? Somebody who's embarrassed or, you know, hates every aspect of themselves or their own history. It's not as if uh, the British in Australia didn't accomplish anything and that it's all just shame all the way down. That's, that's preposterous. So, yeah, that's right. They, they, who would respect that position? It, it doesn't make any sense. Instead of actually doing what most human beings have to do, which is to deal head-on personally with their own problems they want to um, outsource their problems yeah and it's just too easy to outsource the problems to the white man right now even if you're white I'm, I'm i'm really talking specifically here about white people sure they're the ones that are sort of demonizing and, and many people have made this point when you think of sort of woke culture or whatever you want to call it progressivism You've, you've really got a kind of intramural battle, which is like the white elites who, for ideological or selfish reasons, want to complain about all disparities of outcomes, right? Even when the disparities favor Asians, not whites, right? They'll just compare, let's say, blacks and whites in the, in the United States and England. And they'll say, well, this is because of, you know, white supremacy or whites are evil or whatever. They, they'll never revert to some other explanation, true or not. It's... And I don't even think it's sincere half the time. I think it's often a way of saying, okay, look, I'm, 
I'm not one of the bad people. I'm one of the good ones. Uh, you know, I want you to hold me in higher regard than these low class whites. You know, these. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I go with that analogy of them being in between two islands. It's because sooner or later you, you, you have to set up camp on, on one island. It, it doesn't mean that you dislike the other islanders, but you will find your, your purpose on an island, not in, not in the middle, in the ocean. Because everyone has a job to do on the island. Everyone has to get to work. And then you'll find, well, hang on a second, there's this white guy on the island who's got schizophrenia or... He's just lost his mother and father in a murder. But they almost want to not see those people as human because it contradicts the narrative that they they have in their mind. And and we see this in Australia a lot right now, especially with this so-called rape culture, right? If you want to actually take rape cultures of of countries that have had a rape culture, you'll, you'll find it generally in war, right? Yeah. A lot of wars would end with mass rape, right? That was a very common occurrence throughout history. But we've got mainly female journalists and editors who are in their mid to late 30s, early 40s. These people who are angry at men because, as I said earlier, the system has chewed them up and spat them out. So when you hear journalists in Australia, female journalists, push a narrative that women can't walk home safely, I mean, it's just bizarre. Well, it's statistically obviously false. They're, they're reaching for, as you said, I mean, just, look, we have a desire to tamp down injustice, to fight injustice. And when there's very little left to fight, you make it up. I mean, that's the point of one of the great novels in Western history, Don Quixote, right? When there are no dragons to fight, he starts, you know, poking windmills. at windmills. That's how our minds are wired. And so that itself, I mean, there's that elusive, we, we make up an inner ring when it doesn't exist. <laughs> I, have to, I have to perform these heroic actions, you know, stabbing at windmills and conquering villages, which I imagine are castles or whatever. This is, yes. this is what social justice warriors are. They're really Don Quixote. They're, they're tilting at windmills, trying to find this injustice. And as some have said, the, the supply of racism, homophobia, and all these other isms is so low that the demand exceeds the supply. And so they just start inventing it. That's why hate crime hoaxes are on the rise, right? Hate crimes are pretty rare in the, in the West, but hate, hate crime hoaxes are spiraling out of control. Journalists like Andy Noe have documented them. They're stabbing at windmills instead of actually confronting the elephant in the room, which is that progressivism doesn't work for women. Yep. Modern feminism is the enemy of a happy woman. And that's, that's the target demo, like you said, of, of certain journalists. It's interesting too, Johnny, that International Women's Day was organised by the Socialist Party of America in 1909. And then after women gained suffrage in the Soviet Union in 1917, which was the February Revolution, Vladimir Lenin made it a public ho- national holiday, March 8, 1917. Yeah. Its roots were founded in communism and, and socialism, and then the UN adopted it in 1977. The UN, which I've been saying for a long time, is the modern, sophisticated animal of communism. And it's, yeah, it's become that. 
I don't even know if it was founded that way. I've read some of the founding documents. I don't think that was the intent, at least by everyone who founded it, but that's what it became. It's hard oh, to you... know what, what was discussed behind closed doors, but, you know, having read some of the founding documents, I think at least some of the people behind it were had innocent enough goals, which is things like preventing another world war, a Holocaust, etc. But it very quickly morphed into a leftist political unit and a kind of imperialistic one, right? Everyone has to have these rights and they're not just going to be rights of, you know, freedom of religion and things like this, but they're going to end up being obligations of one state to, you know, do things for other states, whether they want to or not. It ends up being a kind of global socialism. Yeah, well, you know, if you look forward to, to it now and people say that perhaps um, COVID, COVID is a mechanism to kind of tighten control again, a bit like what happened at, after 9-11, yeah. then it kind of makes sense if you think about the UN as an opportunity post-war for the original pre-war socialists, Henry Ford and Rockefeller, these guys. Mm. to actually consolidate that power. And World War II was the perfect catalyst, right, for this to happen. So you create a global organisation that does things like, say, today's International Women's Day. It's very creepy. Yeah. And then you add in the World Bank and you add in the WHO. So now you've got this kind of, you've got a very Orwellian picture of what the, the ministry might look like. Yep. And I think that was the danger of the United Nations. Nations aren't meant to be united. Nations need to have autonomy, right? Yeah, and one of the... And tying this together with what you had said a little while ago about, for example, Australian Aborigines and other... You know, there are minority groups in every country, really. Every country on Earth, as far as I know. How do you actually lift people up? And it seems to me the obvious... The obvious solution is a kind of nationalism where, you know, there's at least a veneer of being together and working together towards some common goal. So nobody can really get behind some global goal that other people, outsiders set. But what they can do is sort of say, well, this is our land. We literally live on this land. We share it together. In your case, it's an island, a large island. (laughs) But... It seems like the most obvious pragmatic solution, which is to have a kind of nationalistic culture. That doesn't mean militaristic culture, but it does mean, unless you're proud of some common heritage, well, what, what are you going to do? You're going to fight. You're going to fight other groups. And there's just no end to that. The only thing that can do is benefit particular elites. You know, I don't know how you feel, but I've never been especially patriotic. I sort of cringe a little bit when... You know, people have giant flags and (laughs) it's just not my personality. But I also recognize that most people are not like me. They really, really want songs and flags and symbols to rally around. And that's exactly what Trump did. And it's no accident that during last year's BLM riots, you know, they were talking about they were taking down statues, first of all, burning the American flag mocking the rallies that Trump had, which were nothing but positive, feel good. You know, there were songs, there were chants. 
I mean, of course they would want to destroy that. Of course they would want to destroy monuments. Those are the symbols around which people yeah. rally. That's that's what those are the symbolic tips of nationalism. Maybe there have to be deeper values and so on, but those are the symbols of those values. And that's why they go after them first. When nationalism is humming, then people feel in place. Um, there's an ident- subconscious identity that goes on. Yes. But when that starts to get attacked, as it did through Barack Obama's presidency, then the flags start to come out. Trump, he knew what those people wanted. Um, at the end of the day, they just wanted to be largely left alone and given the opportunity to be free. Yeah, and but they also wanted something to be proud of and a national culture, and yeah. they wanted to affirm our history and our values. And, of course, those are all being undermined, and, and that's also by design. Putting all of this into context, we need to be very careful with the size and nefarious nature of progressive inner rings that are taking place now. C.S. Lewis's advice at the end of this to a young person just entering on adult life, the world seems full of insights, full of delightful intimacies and confidentialities, and he desires to enter them. But if he follows that desire, he will reach no inside that is worth reaching. Excellent point. Good place to end.